Welcome to all of you here in our Bethel campus, as well as those of you who are online, and also in New Milford, in Waterbury, in Derby, in the Valley, and our friends at Greenwich, as as well up in Massachusetts. So good to be worshiping together with you. Um, What a lovely way to begin our morning, just worshiping the Lord, drawing our hearts into where he's calling us to now lean in to hear from his word. And the passage that we just read is a powerful passage that kind of comes on the heels several chapters after where we were last week. If you remember, Pastor John Dishinger was sharing from the, from the chapter 8 of Acts and chapter 9 of Acts, and this dramatic experience that, that Paul, also Saul, his name is, this, remember, his, he's got two names, so if we, if we ever go back and forth, you'll know it's the same guy we're talking about. We see that he had this amazing freedom that came through Christ, coming and meeting him in a powerful way. And we see that he arise. He rises and shines in freedom. The guy he was was not the guy that he became because of what Jesus had done on encountering him on the road to Damascus. So we we move on from there, and we're going to jump ahead some chapters. We just did in reading Acts chapter 20. Today we look at what does it look like to arise and repent when it comes to our obedience to the Lord in the area of humility. So this is going to be all of our favorite sermons of all time, talking about humility. Uh, I tell you, when you prepare a message on pride and arrogance and the opposite of it being humility, there's some things that are revealed to you as well. So it's been a fun time getting ready for this sermon with you, and I'm sure it will be for you as well. Here's a story to kind of start the the topic off a little bit lightly, because we're going to get into some a little bit heavier stuff. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I had a really interesting experience in my household that I thought I'd tell you about. Yes, it does include the dog named Bob. So for those of you, uh, you know, Bob fans, you get a little story about him today. It was about 9.30 p.m. on a Sunday night. You know, so everyone's kind of settling in. It had been a long weekend. Um, Amy and I were, I hate to say it, already getting ready for bed at 9.30 p.m. <laughs> the boys were downstairs, and they were kind of doing the final things, locking up the house, letting the dog out. And all of a sudden, I heard a cacophony of noise coming from my downstairs, the boys were yelling over each other. Now, this is not abnormal, but it sounded distressed, so that was a little abnormal. So I came running down the stairs, and it was if I got punched in the face with the most foul odor that I've, I've smelled in my life. I mean, it was so bad, I could taste it. Have you ever had an odor in your house that you could taste? Probably not. I hope not. My dog got sprayed with a skunk, and my boys, not knowing because the dog was pawing at the back door, let him in the house. And so, and they started just, everyone, including the dog, were running around the house, not knowing what to do. So we shooed the dog out the front door, and then we did what every family would do in a situation like this, went to Google. How do you get rid of the smell? I knew what I'd heard growing up was, you know, you use tomato juice. But who's got cans of tomato juice or tomato sauce in their house? We don't. We've got Italian neighbors, I probably could have gone to their homes, but we weren't going to do that in that moment. But the house was filled with the odor, so we, we found, here's, here's a little quick tip for you if this ever happens to you, and it does work. We found the home remedy, and it's a combination of, where did I put it? Here it is, because <laughs> I think you need to know this, it's very important. Hydrogen peroxide, baking soda, and dish detergent. So we make this concoction, and then my boys sort of disappeared somehow. (laughs) So I drew them back in. We got the dog into the shower and we scrubbed him, scrubbed him multiple times, 
dried him, put him back in, scrubbed him with this concoction, and eventually it got a little bit better. But then we were on one side of the house, we went back into the other side of the house, and it was, the smell was so potent. All the windows were open, we were trying to get all that smell out. It got better, it was enough that we could, we could sleep. But in the morning, I got in my, my vehicle to come to, to church, and I smelled it again, like as if it were fresh. How did it get in my car? I don't know. And then I realized as I was driving to work, it was on my hands. I, it, was, it was badly on my hands. Nothing, I, I used everything you can imagine to try to get it off, minus, you know, bleach. But it was still there. Later, days later, I could still smell it on my dog's head. The other day we walked in the house, I'm like, it's still lingering. How is it possible? But it was there, that smell is hard to get rid of. I think finally, if you walked in my house today, you wouldn't smell skunk. Now that I told you this, you might. It, might. it might just be in your olfactory senses. But I want to say, why did I share that story? I thought we, we needed a little bit of a lighthearted start. But also, I think it's because when you think about pride and arrogance, it stinks. Doesn't it? I mean, when, when you're around somebody who's like dripping with pride and arrogance, it's foul. It is not pleasant to be around. But so often we venture into prideful and arrogant behavior and we don't notice. And what I want to say to us today is sometimes we need to take a whiff of ourselves and ask ourselves and ask others around us who we love, hey, do I have a little bit of that stink on me right now? Do I need to get it off? I think it's an important question to ask. Now, Paul, I believe, if you were to ask him, Paul, what, what is your signature sin? That sin that you find yourself going back to sometimes. Even though you are redeemed by grace, you've been changed, transformed. We all have these things that we probably have a tendency to go to in the flesh. I think for Paul, if you were to ask him, he would say pride. Pride would be his signature sin. Here's why I think we can see that throughout Scripture. I don't, I'm not making this up. I think we actually see it played out in Scripture. Here's the first place I see it. It's one of the, I think it's the first place we actually encounter Paul. It's at the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. Here's Paul standing alongside as, as an authority figure, as a Pharisee amongst these people. He's not, he's not just supporting what's about ready to happen. This man who's sharing the good news of Jesus, being stoned to death, but he's also acting as judge and jury. This sounds like a man who was comfortable being God being his own God, as opposed to looking to God. We also see later on that he is hunting down peace-loving Christians to have them imprisoned and even killed. And when, when you dig just a little deeper on the words that describe this behavior, it was as if he was a ravenous beast after, like a wounded gazelle. He was going after these people with a ravenous desire to take them down. And then we see that it takes a Damascus Road encounter, something incredibly dramatic to get his attention. And I don't know about you, but my experience with the Lord is that he, he's rarely had to go that dr dramatic with me, thankfully. So I ask myself, how, in what other ways did Jesus try to encounter Paul? I tend to believe that he tried to encounter Paul in some more gentle ways before he had to go to that dramatic way of knocking him off his horse and blinding him? Did he speak to him through scripture? Did he speak to him through others who were saying, Paul, what is it about these people that you wanna take them down and kill them? Did he speak to him 
in dreams, in visions. I tend to believe that he was speaking to Paul, trying to get his attention, but it took something so dramatic to get his attention. That speaks of pride and arrogance. Even this concept of the scales that were on his eyes coming off would always be a reminder to him that even though he thought he was seeing clearly, he wasn't, was he? He was blinded to the spiritual truths of what the Lord Jesus was doing and had done. And he needed those scales to come off, and I believe he would always remember that from that day forward, a reminder that you thought you were seeing, but you were blind. You needed those scales removed, those prideful, arrogant scales, and everything else that was there removed so you could see clearly who Jesus truly was and what he was all about. So this leads us, as those who read these passages, to ask the question, how can I arise in humility? We see an example of change and transformation in this, this character, Paul. And he was, in his day, seen as very successful. So how did he, you know, post-encounter with Jesus, stay so humble in the midst of not just uh, previous success, but even, you could say, success as an apostle? He was seeing amazing things happen, and yet he somehow held tightly to this humility in his life. We're going to look at it. I think these are great ways for us to apply, great things that we can apply to our own lives. Here's the first thing that I see that he does. He walks with Jesus. He walks with Jesus. In fact, he models his life after after Jesus as closely as he can. Now, we don't live in the Middle East, and we can't do things exactly the way Paul did. We are 21st century Christians, not first century Christians, but we can learn a lot from what he did. Number one, he traveled with others, just like Jesus did. He kept people around him. He He opposed those who were against the good news of the gospel. He did it even to the point where they were plotting against his life. He he consistently declared his readiness to hand over his life for the sake of the good news of the gospel. He expressed his complete commitment to the will of God. All of these things align with what Jesus did. And he was following in his master's footsteps, steadfastly, taking steps into different places that the Lord clearly called him into. So the first way that we can arise in humility is we can find in our own lives what it means for us to walk in the steps of Jesus, to walk with Jesus. The second thing that he did is he remembered his need for a Savior, and we have to remember our need for a Savior. Listen to Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3, 4 and following. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now it goes on, and I'll get to that in a second. But let's pick on a couple of these things. So even before Paul was born, he was a good Jew. (laughs) Because his parents made certain decisions. They lived in Tarsus, likely, which was a Gentile region, and yet they still followed the Jewish way. They made sure their son was was, uh, circumcised on the eighth day in the right way. Somehow they tracked their lineage all the way back to the 
to, to Benjamin. So they had connection to the original 12. This is not something everyone could do, but they were able to do that somehow. He was able to track his lineage. He was a pure-blood Jew. In other words, his parents and those before him didn't intermingle with the Gentiles. They could prove it, and that's why we hear that he was a Benjamite. And then, that's, that's even before he could have even made an effort, right? I mean, that's what his parents did. But then he says, by my own effort, I was successful. I was a respected Pharisee. And in that day, they were the most respected when it came to, to, um, to strict, strictness to the law, strictness to the ways of Judaism. He was zealous even to the point of persecuting those who he thought was going against the way of the Jews. And he was completely law-abiding. Now listen to what he says about all of that. In the next verses, after those that I had read previously, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. That's Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8. See, Paul's identity, it once was found in his status, in his achievements, in the good that he thought he was doing. That's where he found his identity. But when he compared all those things that could have been seen as really good things in that day to his new life in Jesus Christ, it was like none of it mattered. It was garbage in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the whole, the old is gone, the new has come. What I was then is nothing compared to what I am now. Not because of what I've done, not because of what my parents did, but because of what Jesus did in my life. Totally transformed. This is a little bit of a stupid comparison, but it's as close as I could get in my own mind. I, for a long time, you know, I'd go on, the, on a trip, and I'd bring my headphones along, and, you know, I'd listen to music or something on, in my headphones. And then, you know, I married my wife, Amy, and her brother worked for Bose Corporation, the, the speaker and headphone company. So I got some of the spoils of uh, my, my uh, brother-in-law's being part of Bose, and I got a set of noise-canceling head, Bose headphones. Has anyone tried these before? If you haven't, I'm advocating for them today. <laughs> I'm telling you, when you wear these, when, for me, I wore these, I'm like, have I ever heard music before? The comparison between those crummy earphones I used to use and the Bose headphones is so dramatic. I, it's almost as if maybe I've never even heard music before. It sounds so different. Silly, I know, comparison here. But I think that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, it's like I've never even known God before. It's so dramatically different. It's like I've never heard music before. It's so dramatically different with Christ in my life. He was transformed. He looked back at his former life and he said, was I even living before? That's the difference. That is the difference between knowing a Savior and not knowing a Savior. That's how dramatic it is. Far more dramatic than a set of headphones. It's as if you were never living before. And then you get to know Christ, and you're alive. You're alive. Praise the Lord. This is what Paul's telling us throughout Scripture. We know half the books of the Bible 
in the New Testament, he wrote half the New Testament, he wrote and he says these things over and over again. Remember your need for a savior. Here's the thing, Paul never forgot what he had done. He never forgot who he was. On the screen you're gonna see a passage from 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 15, and it's gonna tell you his heart. Listen to Paul's heart. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength to, to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Here is one of the most successful apostles. If you want to just put them on the board of apostles and say, what did they do and the impact that they had? Successful, for sure. And he says, but I, I consider myself the worst of all sinners. Now, was he saying that I, Paul, am the worst of all sinners? Or was he saying that we, believers, should see ourselves as the worst of all sinners? And I think the answer is both. He's saying, all those things I did, all of that sin that I committed in comparison to who I am, washed clean and fresh from Jesus, that comparison reminds me that I'm the worst sinner. But you're that guy and that girl too. We so often say to ourselves, we're kind of, we're, we're fine, we're good. I live a good life. But what Paul is saying right here is my goodness in comparison with the goodness of God is like filthy rags. He's saying that my sin in comparison with God's holiness is heinous. You say you're a good man or a woman in comparison to who and to what is my question. In comparison to God, our sin, sins, our goodness is like filthy rags. Now we don't get stuck and wallow in our sin. Paul didn't do that. He moved on from it, but he remembered it. He always remembered it. He, it. It drew him back into the reality that he needed a savior. He was a sinner in need of a savior, and we need to do that too. Don't for a second think that you're good enough to be accepted by the Lord, to have a relationship with God, because you're not. But because of Jesus, he's bridged the gap for you, and now you are. But it's what he's done, not what you do. That's what Paul's telling us right here. I know you know this, but let me remind you of it because it's so critical to what we're talking about today. We don't get stuck in that, but we're humbled from that past. We're humbled by it. It keeps us humble. It rem reminds us to be thankful for the undeserved grace that we have experienced. Are you thankful for it today? Yes, be thankful for it. It reminds you that your old life is gone and you have a new life in Christ, an entirely new transformed life. And it also gives you hope the hope of glory, the fact that you will one day be with the Lord in perfection. And this is all because of Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross. 1 Timothy 1.16, this is the next verse from the passage I just read, says, but God has had mercy on me, this is Paul, so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Don't we want that too? Don't we want to be an example of the grace of God in others, for others as they look on us? Man, even that guy, even that girl 
can be redeemed and changed and transformed. Maybe there's hope for me too. Maybe there's hope for me too. So how can I arise in humility? Remember your need for a savior. The next thing I wanna point out is something amazing about Paul. He valued accountability in community. He valued it, really from the very early days of his life. Now, we don't know a lot about his first three years. It says that he spent those first three years most likely in Arabia, probably in, with the Nabataeans, which was that area of Petra. You may have seen pictures of Petra, an amazing area over on the other side of the Jordan River. He probably spent a lot of time there those first three years, probably because the Christians were still afraid of him and because he was being persecuted by the Jews because they didn't want him and his transformation to be used to spread the news of the gospel. It says that he doesn't even meet Peter till three years after his Damascus Road experience. Sometimes we don't think about that, so he doesn't even meet the other apostles, but we know that he's already preaching the gospel where he's at. Why do I share that? Because it's humble beginnings from, from Paul. I mean, he was the chosen one for the Pharisees doing what he was doing, and now he's in Arabia. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the center of it all. But he's following what the Lord told him to do, to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel, to preach the good news, preach the need for a savior that he has experienced in his own life. But then we see that he does connect with some amazing people, Barnabas, right? Mark, Timothy, and then many others. All the way, fast forward to his third missionary journey, which was his last major missionary journey. And we see that he's traveling with nine brothers in Christ. Part of this journey was actually on the Ignatian Way, which a group of our folks from Walnut Hill went and participated in last year with Geni and Sonny Begu over in Macedonia and Greece. You'll see the picture. I'm not, it's not there for you to read everything, but I just wanted you to see the extent of what they did. And when I mention these people, you're going to see that these people have come from these different regions, all of these different regions that Paul was traveling to. These are people who are the fruits of past missionary journeys. And now they've become evangelists alongside of, of Paul. They're diverse. You see Sopater, which is a family relative of Paul's. Pyrrhus, who's from Berea. Aristarchus and Segundus from Thessaloniki. Gaius from Derby. Now you're seeing some of those places as I'm mentioning these, these people. Gaius from Derby. Timothy from Lystra. Tychicus and Trophimus from Ephesus. And then Luke, who's the author of Acts, is from Philippi. Let's just pause for a second. Paul was a strategic guy. Paul was an intelligent guy. Why do you think he's bringing these guys from all these different regions? He's going to rely on them when he's in their, their hometowns to get them around, to help with the language, to connect with the culture. I mean, this is an amazing evangelistic concept. He's bringing them around them because he knows there's great effectiveness when it comes to teams working together, accountability and community. But it's also because I think it keeps him humble. He was the leader. Paul was the leader. We see him as the leader. They saw him as the leader. But there's this beautiful shared responsibility and trust when it came to furthering the gospel of Jesus. So I ask you, who do you have in your life? Maybe you don't have nine, like Paul did in that third missionary journey. But who do you have in your life? One of the quickest ways to become arrogant is to travel through life without accountability, without community. Who's going to call you on that questionable behavior or that misguided thought? Who have you give, given permission 
to do that in your life. It doesn't happen by accident. You want to have a crew? You've got to go find it. I want to tell you, we see throughout Scripture that this is a model of those who love and follow Jesus. They put people in their lives that are going to take them on that journey, take them further, who are going to tell them the things that they need to hear even if they don't want to hear them. I have those people in my life. Do you? You need to have them, friends. What a great model. It's one of the ways that we can stay humble in the sight of the Lord and stay humble with those that we interact with. So how can you arise in humility? Find accountability in community. Final thing I want to end with is this concept of grace personified. Paul believed that in his life, the way he lived, the way he spoke, grace needed to be seen. How do we know this? It's because it's at the center of his messages throughout the letters that we read from him. Acts 20, 24, which is part of our passage here, is a great example. He says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. What separates those of us who are walking in Jesus Christ from any other religion? Let me give you just two key things. The first is this, grace, grace. Paul knew it. Paul knew the grace of God. Do you? Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know it? It's a, it's a wonderful and beautiful thing, and it separates Christianity from any other faith. The good news of the gospel says that you can't fix your situation on your own. You can't fix that separation between you and God. You can't do it. But Jesus has already done it for you. He has crossed the great divide for you. Ephesians 2.8 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. All that's required of us is to, to trust and believe. He's done the hard work. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Your rules, your achievements, your moral living, the rituals that you follow, they cannot save you. It's Jesus. Jesus, he is God incarnate. He became a man. He died in your place. He took upon him the sins of the world, your sins as well, individually and corporately. He did it. And then he rose again to conquer the grave, to conquer sin, to conquer death. That's a separator when it comes to Christianity and other, any other faith. Grace. Grace. Secondly, relationship, not religion. Paul knew about that because he'd experienced religion Oh, he had really experienced religion as a, as a you know, very close following Pharisee. He knew religion. So he knew the difference between that and a relationship with the Lord. Now, other religions might teach that a person can't save themselves. Some religions teach that you have to trust in a leader or in a God instead of trusting in yourself. Usually that'll allow some, some sort of next step. But no other religion says that, you, says that you can know and be known by the God of the universe. Know and be known by. In Christianity, the life that a person receives through faith in Jesus equals a relationship with the Lord. John 17, 3 says, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, Christ, the one you sent to earth. So how can we arise in humility? 
We need to learn to be grace personified as Paul was trying to do. Let me just pause right here. I want to be very clear. You will never understand Paul's motivation if you don't take a look at 1 Corinthians 9. And I would encourage you all to look at 1 Corinthians 9 after you leave here today. For Paul, all of what he talked about in in the passages we've read today, all that kind of culminated to this point of grace personified, it was all about the gospel, the good news. Let me just read one little passage from 1 Corinthians 9. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Now I've heard some people say, well this is just what Paul did. It doesn't mean that's what we're all supposed to do. But if you read the rest of the passage, you're gonna see, imitate me. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It wasn't just for some, it's for all of us. He's saying, we need to be grace personified. People should look at Christians and say, they are full of grace. They are touched by a savior. They are filled with grace. You know, if we don't arise and repent in humility, we're never gonna shine to anyone else other than the choir because they already agree with us. But we're, we are called, just like Paul was, to impact the world. That's our calling, to have impact on those who are out there. Second Corinthians 2 says, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. To those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. We are not the stink of skunk, friends. We are supposed to be a life-giving perfume, the opposite of that smell that smacked me in the face when I came down those stairs, friends. We are meant to be totally different. So what should we do? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. We're gonna finish in just a second. I think we need to take a whiff of ourselves every once in a while. Do a little sniff test. Sometimes that comes personally in our time with the Lord. Sometimes it, it means enabling others to speak to us, frankly, about what's going on and what they see, what they smell. Do you have a little bit of a stink of arrogance on you? Or do you have that life-giving perfume that we hear about in Scripture? If you, if you need to repent and turn around, do it. The world is waiting for us to give that life-giving perfume. You know, take a whiff. Have you been following someone or something other than Jesus? It's time to repent and turn around from that. Take a whiff. Have you forgotten or never knew your need for a savior? Friends, I've presented to you today the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent from your sin and turn and meet the Lord Jesus and his wonderful grace and the relationship that he wants to give you with the God most high. Friends, we gotta take a whiff sometimes. Are we living without accountability? Are we living outside of community? Or, or do we have that place where others can speak into our lives? We may need to repent and turn around from that. Friends, sometimes we have to take a little sniff test. Are we living in the belief that we have to earn the love of God? Or have you received that free gift of grace from Jesus? Friends, if you are in that place, you don't have to wait any longer. Turn to the Lord, repent of your hard work and turn to him and say, I need you. I can't do it without you.
Is, is our lives, is your life something foul, a foul odor to others around you, those who don't know the Lord? Or are you seeking to find Jesus and demonstrate him to those who are in your corner of the world, the places that he's put you to have impact? He wants to change you. He wants to change us. He wants to see us arise and shine. How do I know if I'm succeeding? How do I know if I'm succeeding? I, just a real practically, this is how I know. If those who I know who are curious about faith, because there are some who are not curious about faith, and in fact, if you read the passage, I didn't read the whole thing about the smells, it says that it will actually be a terrible odor to those who want nothing to do with us. That's my synopsis of the passage. So that can be true. But what about those who are on the journey curious about the Lord? Am I fragrant to them? Or do I, you know, do they want to hold their nose when I'm around? It's a good question to ask. Those who are actively on a journey with Jesus, but they're not quite surrendered yet, are they attracted to me? Do they want to be around me or not? Will you ask yourself that question? It's an important one if we want to impact our worlds. A imp very important one. Do they like what they smell? <laughs> it's the gospel, friends. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ on us that smells good. It's the Holy Spirit in us and through us that en enables us to impact the world. And when we do that, we are a fragrance, a fragrant perfume for those around us. So, my beloved, I implore you, take a whiff. What do you smell? Let's arise in humility and be that life-giving perfume that the world needs all around us. Amen? Let's stand.